0: It was around September 2006. I was shaking and I remember pulling my 9 mil Beretta out of my holster. And I put it up to my head, seeing mangled bodies and just destruction. And it's like you can almost see demons just reaching out to grab you. And at that split second, that split moment.
1: You are now listening to the Why Is It Like That podcast, a mental health podcast where we discuss the crippling effects and stories of PTSD, anxiety, depression, and suicide. The views and opinions of our guests are not our own, but merely their side of the story related to trauma, addiction, and mental health. We are real, raw, and uncut. The stories you hear are not easy to hear. Listener discretion is advised. I'm your host, Trey Trevino, alongside your other host, Heath Garcia. We both suffer from PTSD, anxiety, and depression, just like you. Together, we have over 30 years experience in the United States Navy and have seen first effects of mental health on our society and ask the question, why is it like that? We share your stories to provide freedom and comfort to the people of this world, that there is hope, that there is peace, and that we will all be okay. Today, we're interviewing a former porn addict and porn addiction expert, Joshua Shea. He will share the story of his downfall, and end up serving jail time, and finally, the freedom from his addiction. He has a book titled, He's a Porn Addict, Now What? And we're glad to have him on the show to share his story. But first, I'd like to start by taking a moment of silence for the ones we've lost in this mind battle, to our military that we have lost, and to the soldiers, sailors, marines, coasties, and airmen that are deployed in harm's way, away from their families, missing their child being born, birthdays, anniversaries, and even deaths of loved ones. Not what y'all been waiting for. The Why Is It Like That podcast. Let's get it.
0: I hope you guys enjoy what you got coming here for this episode. Uh, We got a special guest tonight, uh, Joshua Shea, coming out of Maine. Um, I'll let uh, BJ talk about him a little bit, and then we'll, we'll dive into the context of this. I hope you're ready for a great episode. Trey, take it away, man. So we got Joshua Shea
1: here. He is a pornography addiction expert Uh, reading through his biography. I'll give you a little bit about him. Um, It was a big addiction for him. And he um, rose to local celebrity status in Maine as a publisher of a well-respected magazine and a member of city council in his town. But he was hiding a secret with his mental health issues and his porn addiction for nearly 20 to 25 years. He was uh, hiding this. So he said it got to the point that his addiction escalated and he where he pulled off his medication in in, uh, 2013 and uh, he got in some trouble. He engages in a teenage uh, on a chat room with a teenage girl online and he ended up doing six months in jail. But he said with a lot of help and support, he turned his life around and he uses a story to help others. So he has wrote a new book titled He's a Porn Addict. Now What? Since then, he's been promoting it and trying to help people. He has a website. Um, if you, if you wear this mask, you know, of porn addiction or like with me, alcohol, and he'll get there into alcohol as well. This guy knows it. He said, if there's a book about porn addiction, he's read it. He's, he's done it. So let me, uh, let me hand over the mic to Josh so he can, uh, tell, tell his little story.
2: Yeah, well, you know, my, my story is uh, not unlike a lot of people who had porn addiction or have porn addiction. Um, and it's, you know, the way that it started was I was a uh, teenager, or maybe even a little before that, 11, 12 years old. And I was exposed to hardcore pornography for the first time by a cousin of mine who had stolen a couple penthouses or hustlers uh, from a store. And um Something clicked in me the first time I ever saw it, and I knew that I had discovered something special, something that immediately made the world feel better. And the closest thing I can explain to it, and this is how I knew it was an addiction right away, is it made me feel like I did the first time I ever got drunk when I was like 14 years old. Oh, yeah. Uh, I I knew from the first time I tried alcohol and the first time that I saw hardcore pornography that I was addicted. So like most addicts, you know, who know that, especially with a, uh, uh, you know, an addiction that you know is something that's looked down upon, you try to hide it. So I was very functional with my life. I was a, you know, average teenager who just happened to watch one or two pornographic movies. He rented every night because, you know, it was a trip to the corner video store back then to get pornography. Um, and then as the internet came in my early twenties, well, I, you know, started to have regular girlfriends, moved out, started to build my career and, um, you know, every, I, I just would go to the pornography or even go to the alcohol when things would get tough, when I couldn't handle the stress of what was really going on, when I couldn't handle, uh, anxiety that was happening when the world was just too much. Well, you know what? It's just easier to lose yourself in some activity that's going to numb your senses, whether that's pornography or alcohol or for other people, it's drugs or gambling or whatever it is. Uh Ultimately, Um, I ended up getting married, having kids, and by my mid-30s, I had uh, been working in the media as a journalist for about 15 years, and I decided that it was time for me to take the next big step, so I started a magazine in my hometown. And even despite, this was 2009, despite the fact that we uh, were going through the worst economy since the Great Depression at that time. I was somehow able to make this thing an overnight success, and I was not prepared for that. I didn't quite know how to handle it. Uh, And it made me feel more successful than I ever had. Suddenly, everybody in this part of Maine knew who I was. Everybody wanted to be in my magazine. Everybody wanted to talk to me. It was very easy to get advertisers. I was on top of the world. And it stayed that way for a few years. And I put far too much attention onto my work. If anything, I became addicted to my job, you know, working 10, 12 hours a day, six, seven days a week. Um, As with anything that's new, it eventually gets old. After four or five years, the magazine started plateauing as far as income came. But while the revenues were even, our expenses started shooting up. And I'm not a very good business person. I can uh, run a business when there's plenty of money, but when things are tight and you have to make smart decisions, I'm not the guy to come to. And I knew that. But I was in a position where I had quite a few employees. I had um, a lot of different vendors, a lot of different freelancers. I had all of these people counting on me and I could see down the road and recognize, Oh my God, I think that we're going to be in trouble here. And so I kind of didn't know what to do. This is when I made a, a huge mistake and it it mirrors exactly what you were talking at the top show. I Pulled myself off of my bipolar medication. I remembered when I was in my early 20s, uh, before I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder, that I um, had this unending source of energy. I had this uh, unending source of creativity. And I thought, if I'm going to try to salvage this business, I need to tap into something I haven't tapped into in a long time. So I went and I Pulled myself off of those pills. That was the worst decision I ever made because within a few months, I was using alcohol and using pornography at probably five times the rate that I ever had been. And as with any addiction goes, you start to escalate more and more. I wasn't having two or three beers after work. I was starting to have four or five beers after work. And then when I got home at night, I started drinking hard stuff. My my drink of choice was Red Bull and tequila. And instead of just going to uh, the video sites where I could watch clips online, I started going into chat rooms and I started meeting women in chat rooms. and pretty soon as, as my life started falling apart in real life, uh, I started spending more time in these chat rooms trying to get women to take off their tops or to um, you know do certain things to themselves sexually uh, because it was re- it was really about control for me. I, I had no control in my real life anymore and it scared the hell out of me. And the only way that I could exert control, I couldn't do it on my business because that was failing. I couldn't do it with my family because I'd been starting to bury those relationships. My friends were disappearing. I was, you know, health wise two, three hours of sleep a night. I was really going downhill. Not to mention that there were also some uh, memories that I was pretending weren't there that had started surfacing from when I was a kid from some uh, abuse that took place then. So this storm of things where it's happening in my life and one of the only places that I could get, uh, I, I could get peace was um, online when I could control these women or uh, convince them to do things they otherwise said they wouldn't do. And this was my life for, you know, four, five, six months in in 2013. And then on March 20th, 2014, there was a knock at the door and it was the Maine State Police. And they let me know that one of those women who I had spoken with uh, a couple months earlier online happened to actually be a teenager. And uh, while I didn't know that, that's no excuse. I am well aware that there are 15-year-old girls who look like 25-year-old women, and there are 25-year-old women who look like 15-year-old girls. And you just can't go into that and do that kind of stuff willy-nilly. But I was so ill at the time, I didn't care. Um, One thing that I do want to underscore here before we go further is that I don't blame the addiction. I don't blame alcohol. I don't blame the girl. I blame only myself because the fact is, while I was under the influence, while I was very ill, I was the one who made the decision to stop taking the bipolar medication. I knew that I had a mental illness and I thought that I could Uh, be super awesome, and just work my way around it. Uh, As most people with mental health issues have this little feeling of always wanting to take themselves off their pills, and I went ahead full bore, unfortunately, and did it. Um, So I don't want to minimize what I did. I don't blame anything else. I put it on my shoulders. Uh, I don't want to minimize it. It was a heinous, horrible thing, and I rightfully served six months in jail for it. But the thing was... When I was arrested, I had never heard of porn addiction. I don't think I ever knew it existed. Um, when I went to my lawyer's office the day after I was arrested, um, I went with my wife and my father. And the lawyer said, well, first thing that I you know, I usually ask in these kinds of situations, do you have any drug or alcohol or other addiction issues? And I said, no, I don't have I don't have any issues. And my wife and my father both said, no, he's an alcoholic. And I was surprised they both said it. And he said, "Okay, well, let's get you some help. And he could tell that I had the point of view of, "Okay, well, I'll go off to rehab for 28 days and I'll fake it till I make it. And I'll I'll get that little certificate that says that I graduated from rehab and I'll show the judge and it'll be all good. And he immediately looked at me and he said, listen, listen. one day all of this legal stuff will be over we don't know if you're going to get any time in jail or if you're going to get a lot of time in jail we don't know what's going to happen with probation or anything like that but here's the thing one day all of this will be over legally but you'll still be you so go off to rehab and get some real help and i went still thinking that i didn't have any problems but about seven days into it everything clicked And all of a sudden, I realized I'm the guy they're talking about. I absolutely do have an alcohol problem. And instead of being there for 28 days, I was there for 70 days. Uh, And at the end of that time, one of the counselors there had me see a friend of theirs who was a uh, CSET. That stands for Certified Sex Addiction Therapist. And we began to talk about some of those uh, early memories of abuse, and about my use of porn, and about some of my attitudes towards women, and I kind of did the same thing as well, where I never, you know, physically cheated on my wife, but I had those friends off to the side who were females who, you know, I could run to when I needed that pat on the back or to be lifted up a little if my wife wasn't filling that role, and we talked about that as well, um, and I came out of that recognizing that I need some extra help here, so I came back to Maine got deep into therapy, um, started reading everything I could about addiction and porn addiction specifically, and realized that I needed some specific help. So I then went for another seven weeks off to rehab in Texas to specifically deal with sex and porn addiction. That was an awesome, awesome transformative experience. And when I got out of there, uh, you know, I had another four or five months, finally faced the music with sentencing. They gave me six months, um, and I went off to jail. And I was... Uh, because, you know, they didn't deem me a violent offender and they didn't deem me someone who was probably at much of a risk for reoffending. They put me into uh, minimum security. So I was around mostly guys who just had drug or alcohol issues. There were a few of them who had uh, some domestic violence issues. And in talking to them, uh, almost all of them had issues with sexuality or pornography. And they were almost more embarrassed to talk about those than they were about the heroin that they used or the fact that they slapped their girlfriend around. They were really they they were scared to talk about their porn or their sex issues. And it just blew my mind because it made me realize when I had been when I was arrested two years earlier, I couldn't find much as far as resources go other than academic books. So as I was sitting in jail, I decided I was going to write a book for any person who uh considered themselves to potentially have a porn addiction and maybe see themselves in my story. Not necessarily getting in trouble with the law, but I think that we as a society believe that porn addicts are these 19 year old guys who live in their mom's basement and have never kissed a girl in real life. And that's that may be who some porn addicts are. But I have met doctors and lawyers and mothers and daughters, rich people, poor people, you name the ethnicity, I've probably met them. There is no stereotypical porn addict. You know, I was a professional who was loved in my community. When I got arrested, there were two TV cameras at my house when my wife drove me home from jail. Uh, You know, it was a big deal because of who I was around here. And I recognized that maybe since you know all of my dirty laundry is out there all you have to do is uh, Google my name and you'll find everything out about me um, because it was played up that big in the media and I decided that if that was gonna be the case I would write this book and when I got out of jail I would try to be a source of information a uh, source of strength and you know just somebody who was there for people who might be going through this and what I found was while I have been there for many men and and some women who struggle with this addiction, I have been approached by so many wives and girlfriends and partners of porn addicts who just don't know how to handle it because you know it's one thing uh, when you might have a, a boyfriend or a husband who is obviously a, an alcoholic. My wife knew I was an alcoholic. She had no idea about the porn addiction until much later. You know, when you discover that your husband of 12 years is a porn addict, well, that sends so many questions through your mind. What do you do? And I kept getting these questions again and again and again. And that's why I worked with a uh, licensed medical and family therapist uh, out of California. And he and I have written this new book. Uh, He's a porn addict. Now what? And uh, it'll be available. It's on pre-order right now and it'll be available towards the end of this year.
0: Yeah, that'd be awesome to try to I I might actually try to look at that, you know. So I was reading your stats here, Josh, and you said you made a quote here that says, did you know studies show that 94% of porn addicts have some kind of trauma and or mental health issues? Um, interesting, very pivotal and powerful statistic. That's a huge number, 94%. Um, and I just want everybody to, to kind of think back in their lives. I know that everybody has been exposed to some type of pornography. Like I was saying, when I was 12, 13, I snuck into my dad's room, found an old VHS tape, uh, no markings on it, popped it into VCR and boom, I was exposed right there. And I'll admit as a young, you know, as a young pubescent male, uh, going through puberty, man, those videos were like mesmerizing. You know what I mean? And I too, before that was a victim of sexual trauma. I was, I was pretty much molested a few times and raped by my stepbrother. And, uh, that was very hard to, to, to get out, but I, I remember that based on that, based on the experience with the pornography from my father, his his tapes, it, it's almost like my whole interpretation or what sex was supposed to be was distorted. And that even complicated things even worse. What do you think, Josh? Is is that a true kind of Well
2: well um for most people, when it does come to pornography or or sex addiction, um, it it usually is sexual trauma. In in my case, it was it was sexual trauma, but there was a lot of mental trauma too. Um, I was babysat while my parents were at work when I was a small kid by a woman who I can look back now and recognize had a lot of mental health issues herself. Very OCD, very uh, just very ill. Uh, I don't know why my parents didn't see it, and we've had some conversations. About about it, but there was a lot of sexual inappropriateness at that house with that family. There was also a lot of you know mental cruelty where you know she would put me outside at 10 30 in the morning and I wasn't allowed to come back in until my parents picked me up at five o'clock.
0: Wow. And
2: any any time I'd mention anything to my parents, uh, you know, I, I would actually have to go in the woods and go to the bathroom because I would get yelled at if I wanted to go in the house to go to the bathroom. Um, I remember seeing some horrible things done to some of the kids there, um, you know, as far as uh, just humiliating them uh, when it came to manners or doing uh, little things wrong. Uh, You know, a lot of it was around potty training. A lot of it was about, you know, uh, differences between boys and girls, that kind of stuff. Uh, so that, th- that absolutely does play into it. Um, I think, you know, I think that, that situation, uh, I had to learn how to deal with it day in and day out. That's when I created my coping mechanisms. I have a, uh, sometimes it's magnificent, sometimes it's horrible, but I have an amazing ability to d- just detach. And I learned it when I was there. Um, Because of all the horrors going on around me, I can just kind of not see anything happening in front of me. I can not let it affect me. Uh, As I was going through uh, therapy and as I was going through rehab, one of the things they kept noticing again and again, they said, you have a severe lack of empathy. And it's like, I have a severe lack of empathy because that's one of my survival skills. I can't care too much. If I care too much, I don't stop caring. You know, I, I always tried to not watch sad movies because if I start crying at a sad movie, I don't turn it off for the rest of the day. So it's just easier to put up that wall of no empathy. Um, and that's how I got through my life. You know, I learned when I was in that house, sometimes if I did something wrong, she would put me in a back room that was completely, completely uh, pitch black for five minutes. Sometimes it was three hours. I Jesus. didn't know what it was going to be. And I just learned to survive. And I learned to survive to the next day and not just survive to the next day, do what you have to do to get there. If that means you have to lie, if that means you have to, uh, you know, bend the truth or tell somebody something that they need to hear. Um, go ahead and do that, you know, and as I got older, it kind of morphed into this, um, never ask permission, just do whatever you want and then apologize afterwards. And because I had built an ability to be a charming guy, um, you know, I could, I could get away with that most of the time, but the fact was when everything, and some of these, uh, memories started surfacing, when everything started going bad for me, therapists have said that that happens a lot of the time. When you reach a rock bottom low, you sometimes go back to that place where you had the most trauma in your life. And that was that time. And that's why those memories started coming back. Um, And it was just, it was really almost too much to handle. Um, I think that was a big part of why I ended up going off the deep end at the end. And, you know, just Ultimately, thank God that the police showed up when they did, because uh, had, had they not showed up, I only give even odds that I'd be here talking to you now. Yes the, yes, the pornography is the thing they got me on, but with the amount that I was drunk driving, with how poorly I was taking care of myself, with the fact that my businesses were going to hell, um, you know, I can't tell you that I wouldn't have been myself in a very bad place six or seven months later and done something stupid.
0: So, Josh, I would—I just want to know, do you remember the name of the rehab program that you attended in Texas for that? Because, I mean, yes. I, I would love yes, to know the name. It's
2: called the Sante Center for Healing, and you can find a link to it on my website in the resources section.
0: And your website is? How do you get there? Re-
2: RecoveringPornAddict.com
0: RecoveringPornAddict.com Make sure that we... We'll put that in the mentions there so that way people have an avenue to to click on and, and check it out. And can you just give us a little brief of what's on your website where little helpful links or information where they can jump right to and get, get into it if they needed to?
2: Absolutely. Uh, my, the first book I wrote was called the addiction. Nobody will talk about. That's pretty much a memoir of my last five years of addiction as I built up my, my magazine and my publishing company. And then as it all crashed and the addiction took over, um, after that, I started the website or a few years after that, I started the website. That website is much more about recovery and, and my journey through getting better and what I have to do almost on a daily basis and how my thinking has changed and, and other informational things like, you know, how people can spot addiction, that kind of stuff. I also have a resources section. So if you feel like you have a problem, if you want to look up the rehabs that I went to, you want to read other articles from people, you want to learn about 12-step groups you can go to, there's a lot of different links there. Uh, If you're somebody who you know, a a message board on the internet is the place you think you should go. There are links to those places as well. So if you have any questions about pornography addiction, if you need to do more research, I have that resources page. And then, uh, like I said, there are links to my book as well. So hopefully it's kind of a one-stop shop. You can learn a little bit uh, about how I how I've gone through it personally, but there's enough solid information there that you can also learn about the addiction as a whole and the potential problems that we face as a society if we don't take care of it sooner than later.
0: Wow. That's very good. And uh, your book that you're coming out with, is that going to be available on like your major bookstores or is it going to be able to be on Kindle or, you know what I mean? How are we going to be able to access this book?
2: You never know about bookstores until uh, it actually happens. But I just I saw a statistic recently that even if you have like a, you're not self publishing, which I'm not, I have a, you know, regi- real legit publishing house, only about one out of a thousand books sees a bookstore anymore. So uh, odds of them being in bookstores, yeah, they'll probably be in a few, but the best place you could go would be Amazon. Or you can go to my website. Right now, if you go to my website on the homepage, there is a link to the book. Uh, he's a porn addict. Now what? And if you order it through the publisher, uh, you can get 25% off. Um, so if if you think this is a book that you might be interested in, if there's any woman out there, or girlfriends, or partners, or moms of sex or porn addicts, and you've got a lot of questions, you know, go ahead and order that. It'll be out later this year, and it's a nice private way to have all your questions answered, to not have to go find a, a, an, an addict and ask them or not go sit down with a therapist and ask them. This is a way that you can get a lot of questions answered um, and then decide which, what your next steps are because we do also introduce, if you finally come to the conclusion, yes, he is truly a porn addict, um, he is sick, he does have the disease of addiction, uh, what your steps can be at that point, what you can expect going through that journey.
0: Awesome. Thank you for that info. Um, So a lot of us wear a mask and the the premise of our conversation today is called masks. I teach a church group uh, and we did a session uh, just this last weekend and I call it, you know, the man or woman of a thousand masks because we walk around in life and we kind of have this mask on at all times because we don't want, that transparency or the shame to show of what we really do on, on our time that we're, you know, the thoughts that we have going through our mind or the things that we do on our off time, um, that we're away from everybody in the dark. Right. Um, so if you can, what kind of masks, you know, if you want, if you want to think as a physical thing, what kind of did you have to wear every day to day, uh, with your addiction?
2: Well, you know, and I think I learned to put on masks when I was that little kid who was just trying to survive in that house. Uh, You know, I... Was I learned very early on, size up the situation and put on the mask for whoever is the gatekeeper there. Whoever is the key holder, whoever has control, be whatever that person needs you to be and cozy up to them and maybe you'll get control. Uh, And that's always the way that I operated my life. And I I look at it uh, almost like... I, my life was a box, uh, that, uh, uh, a jigsaw puzzle was in, and it was in a lot of little pieces and those little pieces didn't connect with each other at that point because I didn't want them to, I lived my life very compartmentalized. You know, I used to flat out tell my wife, okay, I'm going to go and play city counselor now, or I'm going to go be the magazine man, um, or I'd be asked to give a speech somewhere and I'm going to, I'm going to go be the wonderful community guy. Um, You know, and when I was home, I was husband or or father, and I had all of these different masks and nobody knew the real me. And I felt like the only time. The only time I I ever saw the real me, I had to run from that guy. And that's where the addictions went. That's why I was drinking. That's why I was uh, looking at pornography in the middle of the night, because I couldn't sit there by myself and, and just be content with who I was and just deal with who I was, because I'd never had to do that And with everything that was falling in on me. I didn't know how to handle that. So I just continued compartmentalizing as much as I could. And, you know, by that point in my life, I had a trunk full of masks and I could pull one out for whatever occasion was needed because I was a master of disguise.
0: And how did that, uh, so being a master of disguise, I mean, ultimately, when, like you said, when we're in the dark by ourselves, we are now faced with our inner demons and now we have to really think about who we are as a person and when you had to think about this i mean what did it make you feel like did it lead you to anything else did you lead, did it lead you in, into a darker path i know you said you compartmentalize everything but is there ever a point where everything started to bleed over to where you started to self implode oh. Yeah,
2: absolutely. In the in the couple months leading up to it, in November, and keep in mind, I I was arrested in March of uh, twenty fourteen. In November of twenty thirteen, most of my business partners took me aside and said they wanted to be bought out because they didn't want to do business with me anymore, because I was turning into such an ungrateful a-hole to be around. Um, I was clearly not taking care of myself. I was making bad decisions for the company, so they didn't really want to be doing business with me anymore. Um, although I didn't recognize it at the time, uh, my wife told me that she had largely let go at that point. You know, She she knew that I had this uh, alcohol addiction, but I refused to call her to ever, ever pick me up anywhere, And when I was at home and she wanted to go do something, I wanted to sit home and drink. And so she... You know, tells me in the last few months that I had there, um, she had largely just let go, and and I look back and I think aside from paying some bills, I did nothing around the house. I didn't help with chores. I didn't help with the kids. I didn't, you know, I I we, we never ate any meals together. Um, my life was falling apart, and I tell you, one of the, one of the scariest things that happened in that time, the day before I was ar- arrested, um, my, I went to pick up my son at my mother's house, and. Uh, He he stayed there after school and she looked at me and she said, you look like you're about to die. And I was just like, yeah, I'm tired. Everything's fine. You know, long week. The the magazine next issue's coming out soon. She said, no, you look really sick. And I just forgot about it. And uh, a few months after I got back from my first rehab, I, uh, I said to her, do you remember telling me you thought I looked like I was going to die? And she said, yes, I do. And I said, did you really think that? And she said, it's the only time in my life I've ever looked at you and thought you looked like you were going to die was the day before you were arrested. Um, So, you know, yeah, my life had already begun imploding. I knew something was going to happen to me. Uh, I I was absolutely sure something was going to happen to me Uh, had I had I couldn't keep This life up any longer physically mentally something was going to happen I couldn't have any idea that it was the police but thank god they showed up because I don't know what else would have happened
0: have you ever during this time in this course time frame have you ever thought about uh, suicide Josh there was there was one time uh, it was Christmas
2: night 2013 uh, that I had about a 10 minute period where I thought that i was going to go through with it and something just everybody had already been in bed uh i wasn't i i don't think i was drunk i don't think i was i was looking at porn that night on the computer um i i just had this wave hit me and it just seemed like the only answer and thankfully when i was out in my garage you know looking at the beams trying to see if i had some rope uh i i I snapped out of it, and that was that was two months before I was ever arrested. and that was the only time I ever felt genuinely suicidal um, was that ten minute window. Um, and I hope I never feel that again it was it was one of the scariest it was one of the scariest feelings because I look back and it just seemed like that was the only answer. And that was so clear. There was so much clarity in that being the correct thing to do in that moment that I fear that it that kind of feeling hits me again and lasts more than 10 minutes. Um, cross my fingers, knock on wood, it never does again. It hasn't since then. But I do know what people feel like when they say that they are legitimately suicidal.
0: And for those of you just turning in, this is uh, Why Is It Like That podcast. We are in a current Discussion with Joshua Shea, who's a uh, pornography addiction expert, a city council member in his, in his home state of Maine and has uh, come out with a book, uh, in tandem, uh, with another author, which is called, He's a Porn Addict. Now what? That'll be released in November. Um, some, another statistic, uh, Josh, for those that are just turning in, uh, it says here, did you know that one in three men who are 18 to 30 years old self-identify as a porn addict or that 28% of people have admitted to looking at porn at work in the last three months, according to two studies? That's that's a pretty huge demographic. Why porn at work? Josh, what do you think?
2: I think that people get bored. This is not saying that these are necessarily porn addicts, although it, it does point to having a problem with it. Um you know, why do people go and drink on their, uh, lunch break if they're an alcoholic? Um, you know, (laughs) it's, it's one of those things where you, when you have an addiction, um, you tend to uh, you tend to make poor choices. That's almost the definition of addiction is that you continue to make poor choices despite understanding the risks and despite understanding the consequences. Um, You know, it's one of those, I, I was, I was the boss and I never looked at porn at work, so I can't necessarily relate to that, but you know, I would be sitting at work and ironically, my office was above a brew pub and you know, whenever I wanted to. And and here's the other thing to to add fire to that or to add gas to that fire. They paid for their advertising in gift cards. So I had $2,000 basically worth of credit down at a bar downstairs. Um, There were plenty of times I left work to go get a beer because I was feeling it. Um, But I think that that these numbers show that this is not something we're talking about, but it's something that's very common. Um, Another statistic is that of those men, 18 to 30, 79% 79% of men who are 18 to 30 admit that they've looked at pornography in the last month. That's 80% of men. And like I said, that's not saying they're they're all addicted. That's not saying they all have problems, but 80% of men under 30 are looking at pornography. Uh between 31 and 49, it it drops to only 67%. So that's 2 out of 3 men between 31 and 49. Um There was a a study done, National Coalition of Families, in 2010. So this is almost 10 years old, keep in mind. 10 years ago, 47% of families who were interviewed reported that pornography was a problem in their home or had been a problem in their home. And this was 10 years ago, before Snapchat, before everybody had Twitter, before everybody was on Instagram, before there was anything called Pornhub, you know. 47% of families had had problems with it. So anybody who thinks if you are truly living in an ivory tower where you don't look at pornography, nobody around you looks at pornography, nobody around you has a problem with pornography, and it's just it's 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 completely not in your life you're lying to yourself because it's there somehow. The statistics don't lie about it. And we need to start recognizing that if 33% of men under 30 years old right now believe they have some kind of problem leading up to or including addiction, we need to do something about this because those 33% of men are not getting help right now. And if the statistics keep going the way they are, that 33% in the next generation could jump up to 40%, then 50%. Now, what happens when these 30-year-old guys are now 40 and they're now 50 and they're now 60? You know, what's this world going to look like when, you know, two out of every five guys has a problem with pornography? That's that's going to be very messed up. You think this, this Me Too movement, you know, is taking over. It's going to be very messed up when you've got 40% of the men out there who are walking zombies be- and, you know, can't get an erection because they're completely uh, hooked on porn. And You know, I'm out there just trying to tell people through my story and through these statistics that we need to deal with this as a society uh, if you want to see these numbers turn around. We have to start talking about this. I know it involves sex. I know it involves naked people. I know it involves things we like to pretend that we don't do, but we need to talk about this if we're really going to address it. We are far too reactive in this society to our problems. We need to be proactive in this case.
0: Excellent points, Josh. And what do you what do you think about females in porn? Do you think that uh the same type of statistics lie with females? I mean, because we often, you know, try to try to cover up statistics or, or not even think about statistics when it comes to molestation, sexual assault, uh, things like that, um, from young girls, you know, up through their teenage years and on to adulthood. Uh do you do you think that or do you recognize that Or do we as, you know, uh, society recognize the same types of patterns for females?
2: Well, here's here's uh, some that's, you know, actually, I mean, I I hate to say interesting because that almost makes it sound uh, positive, but. Uh, With that same group of women under 30 that there was with men, uh, studies show there's only 15 to 20 percent of them who have uh, problems with pornography. So it's roughly half of those – half the women of that age group have problems with pornography like the men. But in the case of the men, only about 15% ever take their pornography addiction to the next level and start meeting people uh, off the computer or start having sexual liaisons. With women, 80% of women take take the porn off the computer screen or TV screen and then go Actual act out in real life and and have affairs or have sexual trysts, uh, you'll find that the numbers of sex addicts that are females are much closer to the number of sex addicts that are men. Now. I've read a lot of theories about this, uh, from that women are just able to get sex, so why stick with pornography? To women are more romantic types and need the actual touch and feel. Um, you know, I don't know what it is, but you'll find more women are actually sex addicts than they are porn
0: addicts. Hmm, that's another interesting uh, discussion that we just that we're having here. And, and if anybody has any questions for Josh um, that's tuning in now, uh, please. Please uh, throw them up here on the chat um, so that way we can get them, you know, we can get those points across and, and we can try to get a good um, feel of what you guys want to know about or want to talk about. Um, Josh, as far as recovery is concerned, I know that you are, you know, you went through the system. Um, I know that you had six months. You, you say it was well-deserved jail time, which I, I applaud you and amend you for that you manned up and, uh, you know, took took your hit. And, and served your time. Um, now, how does the ramifications of this affect you well, as far uh, as professionally and personally?
2: Yeah. Um, part of my sentence was that I have to uh, register with the uh, main sexual offender registry and that every uh, three, four months I have to go down to my local police station and just let them know that I'm still living in the same spot and that, uh, you know, nothing has really changed with me. Um, thankfully, I have uh, been a freelance writer slash for a lot of years uh, since I, since I uh, left the magazine world. So I don't have a problem finding a job because I'm self-employed. Uh, if I want to go find a job in the white-collar world, it probably will never happen. Anybody who ever does any kind of background check on me or looks me up on the Internet, or anything like that is going to find out immediately that I have uh, a uh, a sexual offense in my past and. Generally, you know, higher paying white collar jobs don't will not hire people who have uh, issues like that. And most blue collar jobs won't either. Um, I was part of a support group for three years when I was out on probation um, that sexual uh, offender uh, registry people had to attend. And it was heartbreaking seeing these men who were from lower socioeconomic demographics than I was, who thankfully I had. I had some money saved up and I could go to rehab. I could lean on my parents for support when I needed it, whether it be my kids or helping out pay a mortgage, you know, here or there. Um, These people don't have that. These people, you know, Uh, don't have the skills to go get good jobs out there. And then when you remove most of the jobs as ever being possible, um, that that makes it even harder. That almost instantly puts them on government support. Um, And now you've got rules popping up where different cities or different uh, states and cities that have these registries are Creating residential restrictions where you can't live within a thousand feet of a school or 500 feet of a church or something like that. And while I know that makes politicians feel good that they're making these laws, there actually isn't any basis or any scientific basis in them. Um, When it comes to uh, sex offenders and reoffending and where they live. Uh, Most sex offenders like me are completely hands off when it comes to their offenses. And of those who have actually committed a crime against a person, 90% of the time they know that person. There is nothing to trace where they live versus to living near a church or a school or a park or anything like that. It's just one of those things that the system, the political system does. So everybody feels like, oh, good, the politicians care about this. They're taking care of this. Well, the fact is what they're actually doing is they're running out a lot of the people who are looking for lower income housing. They're running those people away from lower income programs and places where they can get help for their issues. You know, I'm lucky I own a house. It's well outside of any residential zones. I can, my wife uh, works at a hospital. She has amazing health care. So I can see some of the best people who are around here. These other people don't. And the thing that I recognized in jail, the thing that I recognized in rehab, the thing that I've recognized in any group therapy situation I've been, in is that almost everybody there has some kind of mental health issue and we're not dealing with that in the country you know we need to deal with mental health issues and just because you can't see the boo-boo doesn't mean it's not there and if we could get some of our politicians and people who perhaps are a little bit more old school when it comes to believing what makes somebody sick or what doesn't to really understand it you know some of uh, some things uh, might be, help be taken care of including addiction Addiction, um, you know, a, a, including and leading up to porn addiction itself. Um, you know, we're fighting this with very few weapons, and the weapons we're using just aren't the right ones.
0: Okay, Josh Shea, so you're the porn addiction expert, the city council member in your in your uh, city in Maine. Um, what, because you're you're rehabilitated? To me, you're one of the cases of you know a rehabilitated offender. Um, that deserves a fair chance at life. Obviously, um, I guess the main thing I want to know is for those in the in the in the audience tonight, for those possibly even in the in the system tonight that might get a hold of this podcast somehow, or those just dabbling into the podcast trying to f- make a feel and see, hey, is this me? What kind of hope can you offer them? <sighs>
2: Well, uh, and and this holds true with anybody who is an addict of any kind or anybody who has mental health issue of any kind. Uh, Number one, this is not something that you need to be ashamed of. Uh, You may be ashamed of some of the decisions you've made or some of the places that your addiction or your mental health issue has brought you, but uh, you're sick. And you know the addiction is a is a uh, disease of the brain, um, and much like you know my bipolar disorder is a disorder of the brain, um, and you need to find a safe space to talk to somebody. You need to uh, you need to be able to. Get what you need to get off your chest in a safe spot with somebody who isn't judging. And this is for anybody who out there who maybe is in that other role. If you think that your husband or your brother or your sister or your best friend is a porn addict and you want them to talk about it or they need to talk about it with you, create that safe space and don't judge them. You know, just because you're into one thing, they may be into something that's much more disturbing than, than than you have ever been into, don't judge them because addiction and mental health come with a lot of shame. And You've got to be able to put that off to the side and deal with the person who's sick. You know, you don't you don't jump on somebody who is, uh, you know, who needs to go to Overeaters Anonymous or or has a massive problem with food. You know, you don't scream at them when they're having chocolate cake and having too much of it. You got to kind of treat it the same way as someone with porn addiction or or any addiction for that matter. And if you are the person who is there in the addiction, there are so many different ways to get help. Like I said, you can try. 12 step groups. Uh, you can give me, uh, you can try the internet, um, chat rooms. You can try, uh, going to a therapist. You can try going to rehab. You can just research it, learn as much as you can about it. Talk to somebody about it, you know, learn where you are with this problem. Um, and, and then decide that you want to get help. Um, There were so many ways to get help. Uh, uh, 12 step groups worked for me for a little while. They were not the thing that I was going to stick with throughout my whole life, but they helped for a while. I find one-on-one therapy with my therapist to still be, um, um, absolutely fine, um, as far as helping me in, in, in my real life, if on a week to week basis, I still find researching to be a big deal. I find going on shows like yours to be a huge help for me, because it makes me reiterate a lot of my story. It, it makes me talk about hope, it makes me talk about what could possibly happen. But Ultimately, it's on your shoulders. Um, I'm the kind of person who's always liked projects, whether that's starting a business or, you know, building a back deck or, you know, starting a family or whatever it was. When I got arrested, when I got fired from my jobs, I recognized, like my lawyer said, that um, I was going to, I was going to be done with the legal situation someday and I was going to have to live with myself and I didn't want to be the same guy. So in my head, I just rationalized it as I became the big project. And that's what the rehab was about. That's what the research was about. My project was going to be fixing myself. And that's why I threw myself into it completely. I see people who half-ass it. I see people who aren't serious. Um, The internet is full of these boards of incels and no fap. These are the groups where they don't recognize that addiction is a symptom of a deeper problem. My deeper problem being my poor coping skills and survival skills that were formed when I was a kid. I had to go and really understand how I got to the place that I came. Um. I've been now five and a half years sober from both porn and alcohol. I don't find it that hard at this point because I went back and I did the work to figure out how I got here and who I was back when I was a young kid. When I see people just attack their addiction, you know, good luck to you, but you're not fixing anything. You know, all you're doing is you're putting a little bit of Band-Aid on a wound that is not going to heal. It's still festering under there. You need to go and actually heal that wound, deal with that wound, fix that wound, and then it out you don't need the Band-Aid once it's actually fixed. That's, you know, I, people ask me about having cravings every day. And while I still once in a while have dreams about porn or have dreams about drinking, um, I don't find it hard to turn away from them during the day because I went and did that hard work about who I was and how I got there. And I urge everybody to find a professional and do that hard work with them.
0: We can, uh, we can sit here and we could talk about, different aspects of trauma or addictions pretty much 24 7 365 because everybody suffers from it um, masks are made during your childhood based off the trauma that you go through and on through the ages of your teenage and adult years you're constantly remodeling and improving that mask and as you can hear from josh's story he put so many coats of different paint and different aspects of that mask with his addiction and and and, and him covering it up and, and all the things that, that was going on. Eventually, he self-imploded behind that mask and nobody could see it until it was too late. And it cost him six months of jail time and being put on a sex offender list. Um, I want everybody to know out there that it's almost better to recognize that problem like, The only way you're going to recognize it is if you pull that mask off and look at your real face in the mirror and say, hey, I need to dig at that deep-rooted problem, that deep-rooted thing that's in my soul that I need to fix. It's probably most nine times out of 10, not even your fault. It's something that you went through that has impacted your life so great that that was your coping skill and that was your self-defense mechanism as in Josh's. Uh, Porn wasn't so much of a self-defense mechanism, but how he had to live his life during his childhood and the different masks he had to put on to survive each day eventually led him to that point to where he had to wear those masks and he had to go into that addiction to help cope because he had poor coping skills. We, we so often face this as individuals that to me, everybody has a mask. We all wear it. We walk around the streets and it looks like Mardi Gras outside to me. Let's do it. Because <laughs> we got so much, we got so many things, you know, that, that we cover up. I appreciate Josh being on here.
1: Brother, I'm going to, that that's deep what you're putting out here. And it's exactly true what you're saying about whatever the addiction is, you have to hit it deep inside. I did 12 steps. I did the 12 step program AA with alcohol and I, I liked it. But I felt that it was always a a shame, like a guilt. Yep. Absolutely. All you felt was shame. I'm an alcoholic. I did this. I did this. And you never got to why you were. Um, recently I started doing hypnotherapy and with hypnotherapy it got me deep, deep into my head. It's similar to EMDR, what Heath does with PTSD. And I got real deep in the subconscious and find out why is it that I drink like that? Like, why is it that I love that feeling? And we went way back to the first time I drank and why I did it and why I liked it and why I went for it. And it's the same thing with chasing girls. I got the same thing. I get that little bit of spark of like, oh, this girl gave me attention. And it's them endorphins start flowing and you want more of that. And you got to get to the root of why that happens. So I commend you on sharing this deep, deep story that you shared with everybody and our listeners. And um, and through all these technical difficulties we had today, it's probably the most I've ever had at once. Something, some some entity out there did not want this to get out, but yeah, we understand. made it happen.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Stuff happens. That's okay. And thank thank you for the time. You know, there are a lot of people out there. Who will not let me on their podcast? Will not let me on their radio show because they're still far too squeamish about this stuff. So you know, I appreciate you guys so much talking about mental health, and I appreciate you guys stepping up and giving someone like me, uh, who probably is not the most perfect messenger, but right now I'm the only messenger uh, to to talk about this. So, well, know, who's props the, to you and thank you.
0: Who's the perfect messenger? You know what I mean. The, the perfect messenger is the guy that's lived through it and is there to tell about it, you know what I mean? And, and talk about it and make sure that others don't follow in the same footsteps. And I, and I would love to reiterate the fact that for all of you out there, that's possibly going through this and doing it right now, now's hey, now's the perfect opportunity as ever to stop, to get help, look at those deep rooted issues and conquer this addiction, conquer this bad habit. Whatever it
1: is, whatever, whatever it is, is, your, your, your thing is, whatever it is that
0: and know that you have a support group out there and you got guys like Josh that are just waiting on the other end to help you. He's got tons of resources. He's got a book out that, I mean, he's lived it. Check it out. Please do him some service. Take his advice. He's been through it. Like I said, I'll keep saying he's been through it because he has. That's the best thing that we can give you right here is is raw, uncut, unedited, in your face. Why is it like that podcast with... Guess like this. And that's why we
1: hit it with porn addiction. Why is it like that? This is why it's like that. Josh just told you why it is it's the way it is, man. So once again, man, we appreciate you on here. We um, hope to get you back on here in a couple months again, and and see you know who's hit you up or see what's going on with the book. I hope you know it, it hits great. I'd love to check it out myself, and I hope my listeners and our listeners check this out as well. So thank you for being on here, man. Thank
2: you so much. Once again, I appreciate it, and I hope we can talk again soon.
1: Alrighty Josh Thanks brother
2: Bye now